0: Have you ever had uh, one of those experiences where you were operating in a place that you knew you weren't supposed to be operating in, where you were operating out of place, where you felt vulnerable, you felt exposed? This has happened to me many times in my life, and uh, I'm sure it's happened to you before. And some of you are aware of this, but some of you may not know, but I'm gonna let you know now. This has happened many times here on Sunday night. And I'm gonna give you a little insight. So we have an awesome band, right? Let's give them Come on, we have, they have a great band. That wasn't very good. We have a great band, right? Yeah. There we go. And, uh, you know, Brandon does a great job leading our band, and, and they're also talented using God's gifts uh, to bring us into worship, to lead us in worship together. You know, I'm excited about every Sunday coming here to share God's word with you, to spend time with you, but I, I get really excited when we're working through the set list, and I know the songs that we're going to sing, and I'm excited to be led in worship sometimes too excited. And uh, I'm going to tell you why. Because one time I was right over here. I'm always over here. And I I mean, I go full in, guys. Like, I'm not holding back. I don't care what you're thinking. I'm there. I'm going in. I'm singing loud. The band knows. They hear me. And I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm excited. And one time it was the the start of the service and it was the first song and there was a lot of energy. and And I was like, man, it's loud. People are really singing. So I got more excited. So I went like more in, you know, like I'm singing louder, but I'm noticing Brandon and he doesn't seem like excited about it. He's like looking around at the band, like something's wrong, but like discreet, but I knew something was up and I was like, what's the deal, man? Like, this is great. Like people are really into it, you know? And after the song was over, I realized my mic was on. And uh, the loud noise was just me. And I sounded great to myself. But to like professional musicians, they're like, what? Is something wrong? Like, Trent, are the speakers messed up? Like, we mic the wrong person? I mean, what's happening? And I realized it was me. And I was uh, left vulnerable. And the people around, I think, knew because they could tell like it, it wasn't mixing. You know, like the band was on key and I was completely playing off key. But, Full in, off-key, you know? And this has happened twice. (laughs) Um, It'll probably happen again. So keep coming, and you'll, if it's really loud, you know my mic is on. If something sounds off, it's because of me. But no, this happens in life a lot, right? Like, there's moments in life, maybe you haven't had a mic that was left on during a worship service that's like your biggest nightmare ever, but maybe you've had other moments, right? Professional moments, and relationships, and friend circles, different environments where you're kind of left exposed, you know. Like you feel vulnerable. You're operating in a way where you're different from everyone else, and everyone's kind of playing to this key, and you're playing off key to a, uh, you know, beating to a different drum, and it, it's kind of terrifying when you're there. You know, tonight in in Esther chapter three, we actually see that God calls us oftentimes to play off key on purpose, and that it's scary. It's terrifying. He calls us to stand up when everyone else is kneeling. He calls us to play to a different song when everyone else is playing the same tune. But before we jump into chapter three that Sierra read to us this evening, I want to kind of recap where we started. We launched the series called Instrument. What does it mean to be an instrument of God in the book of Esther last week? And we went through two chapters. And what we saw was this. There's this king whose name is Ahasuerus, but... He's really known uh, in history as Xerxes, his King Xerxes. And he is a brutal and he's a jealous king. And he is drunk one night. He's having this huge party. He drinks a lot. He has all these parties. He gets drunk and he decides that he wants to bring out his queen, whose name is Queen Vashti. And he wants to parade her around so everyone can see how beautiful his queen is. This has probably happened many, many, many times. And this one moment, Queen Vashti decides, no. Like, I'm not going to go along with this objectification. You're a sexist, and I'm not coming. Like, I'm, I'm staying in the chambers. And King Xerxes is not happy about it. He's humiliated. And so he gets with his advisors, and they try to make a decision on what they're going to do. They decide to depose. We don't know whether they killed Queen Vashti or they just, like, kind of kicked her out of the kingdom. But they depose her, and they say, listen... This is unacceptable. We can't have this happen. This kind of rebellion. So, we're going to open up a new competition for a new queen. And so the king launches a beauty and sex competition that takes place over many years. Yes, the Bible's real, guys. It is it is the most real movie and TV show you've ever seen. He opens this He he opens this beauty and sex competition where he tells all the beautiful young women from the entire empire, from India to Ethiopia, to come to his palace. And he is going to essentially objectify them. He's going to evaluate them. And then he's going to decide out of all these women who he's going to make queen. So you're like, what is this story about? And then you get to this guy, Mordecai. And Mordecai is a Jew but Mordecai is hiding his identity. He's hiding his faith. He was born in Jerusalem. The Persians took over King Xerxes. the Ahasuerus is a Persian king. They took over the Babylonians. They allowed the Jews to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild their city and their temple, but Mordecai's like, no, I'm good. I like Babylon. I'm staying here. I'm going to kind of stay outside of Jerusalem I'm gonna to go to Susa, I'm gonna spend time kind of taking advantage of these new opportunities. No one knows that I'm a person of faith, no one knows that I'm a Jew, and I'm gonna to try to make something of myself. And he's raising his cousin whose name is Esther, but she's also hiding her identity as a person of faith because her Jewish name is Hadassah, but she goes by Esther. And he's raising her because Esther's parents have died. And when the beauty and sex competition gets opened up, Mordecai says hey you need to go you're like what so Esther goes Mordecai tells her to go don't tell anyone you're a Jew because then you can't become queen enter the competition try to become queen and then Esther says seeks to win the king's favor to be made queen and you're left in this really uncomfortable position as a reader because Mordecai and Esther are being set up as the people to cheer for but they're really uncomfortable and they make moral decisions that are not justifiable. They're like not your typical hero. And that's on purpose. You see, the author is silent about their intentions and their motives because the author wants you to identify with them. The author wants you to say, yeah, I'm like Mordecai. I'm like Esther. I'm flawed and I'm broken and I bend to culture and I take advantage of opportunities I shouldn't. and I celebrate things I shouldn't. And I have a really hard time navigating my faith in a culture that is hostile to my faith. And so coincidentally, when Esther gets brought into the harem, the king notices her. He falls in love with her. He makes her queen. And then coincidentally, Mordecai after that hears about a plot to kill the king. And he tells Esther, who tells the king, and now Esther's relationship with the king is very deep, her influence is strong, and Mordecai is known by the king as a person of loyalty. And this all just seems like one big coincidence. But what we saw last week is that there's no such thing as coincidence. Albert Einstein said that coincidence is just God's way of remaining anonymous. That God is involved in our lives even when he's silent. You see, God is never actually mentioned and he never speaks in this book, but yet he is present throughout all of it. Your coincidences are actually God working providentially in your life. He is faithful, and he is working out his good plan for those that love him. And you can trust him. His plan is going to be pushed forward in your life regardless of your good or bad decisions. So last week we looked at that, and then tonight we pick up in chapter 3. It takes place five years later. And here's what's happened. Esther's queen, Mordecai's just kind of gone about his business. He's living his life. And there's this man named Haman who has been elevated to number two. He's the king's right-hand man. And there's been a decree that everyone has to bow to him. And so this is where we pick up in in verse two. It says, and all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, For the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's commands? You see, to this point, Mordecai has completely hid his identity. Nobody knows that he's a person of faith. Nobody knows that he's a Jew. He's just looked and acted and dressed and spoke like everyone else. There's this decree to now bow down and pay homage or to worship Haman. And Mordecai has finally decided to live out of the convictions of his faith. And so he stands. He doesn't kneel like everybody else. He decides to be authentic. He decides to be transparent about what he believes and how that motivates him. And he follows after what he believes, that he should only bow down and worship the Lord. He shouldn't bow down and worship this person, Haman. But all of his friends are like, what are you doing? Like, we're all kneeling. It's a bad idea to stand. And so it says in verse 4 that they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them. It's like, he stands one time, like maybe that was a phase. Maybe something was wrong with him. And then the next day, he stands again. Like, Haman has not noticed because Haman, as we're going to see, is just, he is so egotistical. He's probably walking with his head up and everyone's bowing. He doesn't even notice that Mordecai is over here standing. But his friends are like, Mordecai, what are you doing? Like, this is a horrible idea. Is this like a phase? Like, what's going on with you? Like, you need to kneel. Everyone's kneeling. Everyone's doing it. You need to do it. And he's like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to kneel. I'm going to stand. I'm going to be different. So he has really great friends, which we see. It says, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. So throughout this pressure, his friends are pressuring him to kneel like everybody else, to be just like everybody else, to be like he was before, and he decides not to. And at some point, he says to them, I'm not going to kneel because, I know I've never told you this before, but... um, I'm a Jew. I'm a person of faith. I believe in God. They're like, you're a what? Really? Like, we thought you were like us. You believe in God? You're a person of faith? Okay. Okay." So what they do is they say, we're going to see how authentic this faith is. You know, is this just like another phase? We want to get our friend back. And so they go to Haman and say, hey, there's there's this guy, you're not noticing him because you're just, you know, so into yourself, but it's okay, we like it. There's this guy who's not kneeling, his name's Mordecai, and, and um, he's, uh, like, he believes in God. Have you ever had this happen, right? You're, you're navigating a culture that it's difficult to figure out how to make different decisions. You're making professional decisions, social decisions, relationship decisions, and you have this conviction that you've been making a decision that isn't authentic to what you believe. And so you, you decide to stand up when everyone else is kneeling. You've been going along with everyone else. You've been playing to the same song. You've been playing the same key. You decide to finally play off key, to kind of like expose yourself, be vulnerable, identify with your faith. And your friends are like, hey, what, what are you doing? Like, you're killing our vibe. You know, like, what, you've been doing this before, You've been going along with this before. You've been celebrating this before. You've been engaging in these things before, and now you're gonna like stand up and not be about that. And then you, you take a really deep breath and you say, um, "The re- uh, the reason is is because like I'm, I'm a Christian, you know. <laughs> like you're a what? I'm a, I'm a Christian. I uh, I believe in God. Like you go to church." Yeah, um, yes, on Sundays at 5. You're not, I thought you were watching Netflix on Sundays at 5. No, 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 I, yeah, I know I told you that. But no, I actually, I go to church on Sundays at 5, and uh, I just feel like, I know, I know I've been doing that, but I, I feel like I should stand up for what I believe is, is true and, and what I believe is right. And your friends don't tell you this, but then they begin to bring up opportunities and different scenarios to see whether your faith will stand. Whether you'll keep standing firm in the position that you've revealed to see whether or not your faith is a phase or whether it's just superficial. Or You ever felt like that? You ever had that happen? It's, it's scary, right? It's so much easier to kneel when everyone is kneeling than to stand up and to be exposed, to feel like your mic is on. it's terrifying. It's really, really difficult. And Mordecai here is feeling all of that because his whole life, he's just looked and acted like everyone else. And now he's finally deciding to stand up for what he believes. And he's being vulnerable and exposing his faith. And it's terrifying. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him. There's a really interesting detail in this passage too. It, It says that Haman is an Agagite. And this is like one of those details when you're reading, you just kind of like brush through. But if you have like a study Bible or a commentary, maybe you picked up on it. There's so much depth in all these little things in God's word, which is so exciting. But what that means is that back from the very beginning of human history, there was a group of people that were at odds with God's people. That were constantly looking to destroy and to take advantage of and to take over the Israelites, God's people. And they were known as the Amalekites. You read about them many, many times in the Old Testament. And when the first king of Israel is established, King Saul, he's at war and he's at odds with the Amalekites. And the king of the Amalekites is named King Agag. And from this point on, the people that are enemies of God, that are hostile to God, that are not people of faith are known as Agagites. And so here the author is saying that Haman is an Agagite. He is an enemy of God. He's gonna prove that to be true, that he is hostile to God. He is hostile to, to faith in the God of scripture. And so Mordecai has decided to finally stand up to someone or to something that is an enemy of God, that is hostile to his faith that he claims. And it's a very vulnerable position and a scary position. You know, I think there's countless times in our lives where we're faced with those decisions, right? where, Where we decide to stand up to something that we believe is hostile to our faith, that is an enemy of God. And it's a difficult decision because it's so much easier just to play to the same key. It's so much easier to kneel when everyone is kneeling. You know, we all play to the music of culture, but God calls us to play off key. His call is many times to play off key. It is to stand when everyone is kneeling. And so Mordecai finally does this, but Haman is not amused. And it says in verse 5 that Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down and pay homage to him, and Haman was filled with fury. Another interesting detail is that the word for wrath in the Old Testament is Hema, which sounds a lot like Haman, has a very close connection. That this man is an enemy of God who is filled with wrath. But it says he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. He is so into himself that when he sees Mordecai standing, he's filled with wrath, but he does not think that Mordecai is worthy of him laying his hands on him. He's like, I'm, I'm not going to be bothered with him. I'm going to do something even worse. It says, so they made known to him the people of Mordecai, and Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. He truly is an enemy of God's people, the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus of Xerxes. So he is functioning now like the new king Agag, who is leading a charge against God and His people. And you think to yourself, "There's no way that the king is going to allow this to happen. There's no way he's going to allow Haman to wipe out all the Jews, right?" I mean, actually, the Persians were, for the most part, in comparison with the Babylonians, they were great rulers because they allowed the Jewish people to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild their temple, to to leave exile and to go back to their homeland and their city and practice according to their beliefs. So you think to yourself, there's no way that this is going to fly. But Haman is crafty. He says that he said to King Ahasuerus, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom, and their laws are different from those of every other people. They do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. He is crafty, and he is strategically evil. He comes to the king, and he's like, listen, I've been thinking There's these people that are in the empire, that are in the kingdom, and they're not like us. They have different customs, different rituals, different culture. In fact, they don't even respect all of your laws. And I don't think it's worth it to tolerate them. I think we should just, like, get rid of them. You notice that he leaves out the name of the people. He never identifies them. He never says... The Jewish people, the people of God. He never identifies it. Just there's some people out there that we should get rid of. And so he takes it a step further. He says, if it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. See, he knows what's going to get the king's attention and what is going to bring success to his argument because the king has been at war with Greece and it has not gone well and the reserves of the kingdom have been depleted and in a, a given year the Persian empire would take in about 15,000 talents and so Haman says listen there's these people we don't need them they're worthless people we shouldn't tolerate them we should destroy them and just so like kind of put the icing on the cake is that I will get 10,000 talents, almost a year's income, and I'll put it in your treasury. I'm going to backfill that if you just let me go forward and, and take out these people that you, it's not even going to affect you. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and he gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hammedatha. An enemy of the Jews. And he said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. So the king says, Okay, I mean, it sounds like a good deal. I'm going to get the money for the reserves. Apparently, we don't need these people anyway. I don't really know who they are, but that doesn't matter. And so he gives him his signet ring and he makes a decree that all the Jewish people are going to be destroyed, wiped out in the entire empire. It says at the end of the chapter that the city goes into confusion as a decree begins to go out among the provinces and that Haman sits back and has a drink. It's like he sits back and he opens a nice bottle of wine and he says, checkmate to Mordecai. This is like a chilling moment in the story, right? This is where you don't want to go to bed. You want to read the next chapter to see what happens. But can you imagine what Mordecai felt? Imagine how he felt. He's been just kind of going with the flow, assimilating into culture, acting like everybody else. Nobody knows his faith. He's been hiding it. He feels convicted. He feels that he should be authentic, that he should stop being a hypocrite, that he should stand up for what he believes. And what he believes is that he should not bow down and worship Haman. You shouldn't pay homage to him. And so he stands, and he's thinking to himself, surely God is going to honor this. know, surely God has something good planned for me because I'm, this is what he says is good and right. And I, I'm scared, but I'm going to stand. And then he finds out that Haman has decided, and he's got the approval of the king, to not only kill him, but everyone that is of his people all the people of faith in the entire empire are going to be wiped out because he decided to stand. He had to have felt like, why did I stand, right? Like, I should have listened to my friends. I should have kneeled. Like, I, I, this should have been a phase. Like, this was a bad, I thought this was good, but apparently this is not good. This, I did something wrong. God, why are you doing this? I thought when I stand up and make good decisions that you say are right and true and wise, that then it's going to be good and smooth and comfortable. But this, now you're going to kill everybody. Imagine how you felt. You know, living out your faith in a a culture that is hostile to your faith or opposed in many ways to your faith. It's like an agagite culture, right? It's difficult. It's hard. And one of the things that happens is that those moments where you stand up for what you believe, where you are vulnerable with your faith, when you expose your convictions, when you play off key, when everyone's playing to this song and you're playing to a different tune, when everyone's kneeling and you decide to stand, the expectation is that things are going to go well for you. But oftentimes they don't. Right? Oftentimes it gets bad initially. Like it it doesn't go in your favor. And so you begin to think to yourself, like, I think this was a foolish decision. (laughs) I think I should go back to what I was doing before. So we all are thinking about all these things before we make a decision. We have all these conflicted decisions, and we're thinking, okay, what are my friends gonna think? What's my boss, my director going to think? What are the consequences for my decision? What are the unintended consequences consequences of my decision? And we judge all those things, and then we stand, and our assumption is that what's going to happen is going to be good, right off the bat. And this is a battle that wages within us. It's a battle that is between the good and the best. Oswald Chambers, who's a famous pastor and teacher, he's probably most famously known for his devotional, My Utmost for His Highest. He has this great quote, and he says, The great enemy of the life of faith in God is not sin, but the good which is not good enough. The good is always the enemy of the best. You see, living a life of faith is an adventure, it's mysterious, it's exciting. It's challenging and it's full of tension. Because what happens is when you, when you come to believe in Jesus Christ and you experience that transformation of your heart and your minds, you're opened up to all types of new possibilities. Because you're no longer just living based upon your perception of what is good or what culture says is good, because now you have God's word that you believe is truth and you believe is best. And so now there's all this tension that you feel and all the different conflicted decisions that you're gonna make, which is, do I trust what God's word says is best for me, or do I trust what my perception of good is, or what culture says is good is, and what everyone else says is good is? Do I trust that, or do I trust what God says is best? And this is the tension that we feel. It's a battle that we feel you see, what happens is when we play off key, when we decide to trust God's best instead of our perception or the cultural perception of good, oftentimes what happens to us is what happened to Mordecai. It doesn't go well initially, and we start to freak out. <laughs> I know I do. You're like, I think I made the wrong. Maybe I read that wrong. Maybe like, I, Maybe I misinterpreted it. Maybe I should just keep going with the culture and what everyone else is doing because right now it doesn't seem right. And so we decide to, okay, I'm done standing. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna kneel again. You know, like, I'm gonna go back into it. Oh, what song were you playing? I'm gonna play that song now. Like I was playing off key for a bit, but now I'm back. Because for some reason we have this understanding that when we play off key, when we stand up and we believe that God's best is truly God's best, that it's gonna be smooth. It's gonna be easy. It's going to be comfortable because God says it's best, so therefore it should be smooth and easy and comfortable. And when it's not, because we're so fixated on having a quick fix and we desire immediate gratification, we think that our decision was foolish. We'll just go back to what was comfortable and easy because everyone else was doing it. But why do we think like that? Because nothing in life that we cherish is found easily. Nothing. Dynamic careers and businesses are found through walking a rocky road where you fall in traps and you have to crawl out of it, and you have many, many hardships, many seasons of struggle. Nobody arrives at a dynamic career and a dynamic business on a smooth, easy, comfortable road. It's hard. All the relationships in your life that you cherish are forged through difficult conversations and vulnerability and a lot of tears, and a lot of pain, no meaningful relationship is found easily and through comfort. But sometimes, when we're trusting God's word and what he says is best, we believe it should operate differently. It should be found and it should be true that we're just gonna, everything's going to be smooth now and comfortable. But that's not how it plays out. God asks us to trust what his word says is best, even when we decide to stand up when everyone is kneeling, we decide to play off key when everyone's playing to a different tune, and initially it looks like a foolish decision. He's essentially saying, well, do you trust me? See, the God's promise to us is this. When you walk with him, when you trust him, when you follow him, there's going to be suffering. You're going to fall. You're going to trip. It's going to be difficult. There's going to be moments where you're terrified. Or you ask yourself, maybe I should just sit back down. But God says, will you trust me that I make better music? That my word is better than your perception of good. That what I offer is in fact joy and beauty and life and flourishing. You're gonna, it's going to be a, a little bit of a rocky road to get there. But it's my promise to you. So we said last week that he is working all things, everything, not some things, all things, for the good of those who love him. It's a challenge to believe it, but God is asking us do you believe that when you play off key, that you're actually going to make better music? That it's actually better than what you perceive or what culture says is good. And see, here's the thing we should trust the promises of God. We should trust that what he says is good is, in fact, best. Here's why. Because Jesus played off key for you. Jesus did not kneel when everyone else was kneeling. He stood. There's the very beginning of Jesus' life, he goes into the desert to fast and to pray to begin his public ministry. And he's tempted there by, the, by the, the devil. And the devil comes to him and he says, listen, I know what you want. I can give you everything you desire all you have to do is bow down and worship me. If you bow down and worship me, I'll give you everything you want. And Jesus' response is that he will only worship the Lord God and serve him only. He won't bow down to anything else that is hostile to him and his word. And you see, Jesus' life was a life that was walking a rocky road. There was suffering. There was pain. And Jesus walked that road perfectly, not for his good, but for your best. He walked through that so that you might come to find forgiveness through his death on the cross and his sacrificing of his perfect life as a payment for your sin, that you might find forgiveness in God, that you might find relationship with the God that made you and loves you, that you might find a vision for your life so you can actually trust God's word as good and you can live in that tension and say, God, I'm gonna trust you instead of what I believe. I believe that you know more than me. And even in the hardship and even in the suffering, even when it looks like that was a bad decision, someone just made a decree that it's for my life and everyone around me, I'm going to trust you. You see, Jesus walked that road for us so we can trust him. You see, sometimes when you play off key to everyone else around you, it looks like you're creating bad music. It's like, what are they doing? That is not good for their career. That is not good for their social status. That is not good for their relationships. But in God's orchestra, when you play off key, you're actually playing on key. And you're making better music. And God reminds you of that as you take step after step with Him. It doesn't mean that it's not scary and terrifying but you come to experience God's promises are true and you don't miss out on what he has for you. My prayer is that all of us here, we really trust and believe the words of Psalm 1611. Here's what it says. You make known to me the path of life and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That the path of life, fullness of joy and pleasures abounding forevermore is actually found when we trust God's best instead of our perception of good. And that means sometimes he's going to call us to stand when everyone's kneeling. He's going to call us to play off key when everyone's playing to a different song. Will you pray with me?